This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Tonight my topic is, what is the significance of Jesus' ascension? And... I want to start with a question. Have you ever felt slightly jealous of Jesus' original followers? The men and women who saw him and knew him in the flesh. As if it would be much easier to have faith in God if Jesus was right in front of you. uh, Speaking, healing people, multiplying loaves and fishes. Have you ever thought, of course I would have faith if I had actually seen Jesus. It's the life of faith 2,000 years later that's so hard. Uh, if you've never thought this, then, then that's great. Good for you. <laughs> uh, I don't want to always assume that everybody's as uh, dysfunctional as I am. but um, I have thought this before, uh, and I think it's a completely untrue way of thinking because it fails to acknowledge two very important things. The first thing it it fails to acknowledge, it's obvious, uh, if it's so much easier to have faith when Jesus walked the earth, why did his closest friends and followers so often fail to have faith? Um, They certainly did not make it look easy. Um, It turns out that even being in the presence of God incarnate still demands great faith. And we may well have done no better than the disciples, if, had we been there. We have to face the painful fact that we too might have misunderstood his clearest statements, uh, lost confidence in him during difficult and dangerous times, failed to recognize that he was really God, failed to see the grandeur of his mission, and bickered about who was greatest. Um, that's the first thing that, that, that you know, the first... Uh, mistake. The second one, the um, second reason why we might think that it would have been much easier uh, to be a disciple back in the day, it's less obvious. And I think it's because we fail to appreciate the importance of the ascension of Jesus mm. and the amazing real life, real time benefits that are available mm. to us because of it. Um, the Apostles' Creed is. Uh, the earliest of the known creeds of the church. There are versions of it that have been found um, from the second century. Um, it might, it's, it's likely older than that. And it's thought to have been used as a catechism for new converts to Christianity, as, as something to, to help teach the doctrines of the Christian faith. It contains the most basic fundamental beliefs that Christians have affirmed throughout the ages. And most subsequent creeds of the church have... Um, included the aspects of the Apostles' Creed and expanded upon some some of its content. The first, roughly the first half of the Apostles' Creed reads like this. <clears throat> I believe in Jesus Christ... Sorry, I believe... Well, no, this is the middle. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and it continues. The Apostles' Creed is very short, it's very concise. Given all of the things that one could put in a creed about who Jesus is, we can assume that every phrase is significant and there for a reason. There's not filler. There's no filler in a creed. Um, Despite this, my hunch is that most of us pay more attention to some parts than others. And one of the parts that people tend to overlook is the phrase, He ascended into heaven. Um, certainly that's been the case for me, uh, and I've talked to lots of people for whom it's the same thing. It's, it's kind of a, the ascension is just the bit sandwiched between the resurrection and, and Christ's second coming. And you kind of just breeze past it. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this lecture. I have a, a, a friend, a, a mutual friend of Nikayla's and mine from years and years ago, who challenged me, probably 12, 12, 13 years ago, you should do a lecture on the Ascension. And I um, was not immediately moved <laughs> uh, or inspired, but it have, it's been in the back of my mind ever since. Huh. Well, what, what, what would that take? Um, so, yeah, anyway, this is one of my reasons. It, it is an, it's sort of an overlooked event in the Bible, the, the event that's actually described, but even more so it's an overlooked doctrine of the church that's founded upon that event. And it's sometimes treated as just the cherry on top of the resurrection. An afterthought that's not significant in itself. Uh, this is not the case. It is not the cherry on top of the resurrection. Everything changes as a result of the ascension. And I don't think that Jesus ascended and said, good to be back in heaven. Let's get back to business as usual. Where were we? <laughs> this is not <coughs> what Jesus ascending means. Um, So why is it important? There's two basic sections in this lecture. Uh, First, uh, what happened when Jesus ascended into heaven? And second, what does Jesus' ascension continue to accomplish? And I want to talk about these two categories, these two different kinds of questions. And there's a lot of overlap, and it's kind of a mess, but um, there is a distinction to be made here. I want to talk about what happened because there is a once and for all sort of nature to the event. As a moment in human history, as a moment in the history of God's people, the church, and as a theological turning point. It's a hinge point, um, theologically. So there's a before and an after the ascension, and nothing, like I said, nothing is the same as a result. Uh, So the question, what happened, is important. But I also want to talk about the second question here, was what is the ascension accomplishing uh, and for those of you grammar nerds, in the present continuous tense, as in the ongoing, what is it continuing to do? Uh, there's an ongoing effect of the ascension. It's a continuing reality that touches every follower of Jesus every day, whether we acknowledge it or not. So there's uh, plenty that seems distant and hard to wrap our minds around in this discussion. Um, so get ready to not understand everything. Um, but like like all good theologians, we are not dealing only with distant abstractions. 
but real life, everyday, deeply personal impact of things that might have seemed abstract, mm-hmm. right? Um, but actually, their implications are not at all abstract. So theolo- uh, theology is practical. It should it should breathe into our everyday lives. So the ascension is not just a distant event or a bit of interesting theology, uh, but a moment-by-moment resource for you and me as we live as Christians, trying to let the gospel seep into every corner of our lives. So let's, let's start in on the first question. What happened when Jesus ascended into heaven? Jesus departed. He's no longer available to his people in a visible, touchable way, as we know. This is pretty obvious. Um, to be a disciple of Jesus involves faith in someone we have never seen, never touched. We've never heard the tone of his voice. Uh, he's not available to our senses. This is because after his resurrection, Jesus, for very particular reasons, according to the plan, chose to ascend into heaven. It was part of God's plan all along. I found this book here uh, to be helpful. It's a book called The Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected Doctrine. It's by Patrick Schreiner. Uh, it's quite concise. It's not super in-depth, uh, but it has some helpful categories in it if you're interested in reading further on this topic. I'll be quoting from him on and off throughout the evening. <clears throat> it's a good entryway uh, into the topic. Uh, in it, he refers to three central roles that theologians often talk about Jesus having, offices. Um, that of prophet, priest, and king. There's even a hymn that says something about that. Uh, so one of Schreiner's goals in the book is to show that each one of these offices finds its fulfillment in the ascension. Jesus' prophetic role steps up at the ascension. His priestly role is established fully in the ascension, and his kingly role is established fully in the ascension. Um, so that's that's just something to keep in the back of our minds as we go. I'll be mentoring, mentioning these three offices of, of Christ. Jesus as a king, Jesus as a priest, Jesus as a prophet. The, the fullest account of the actual event is in Acts chapter 1. There's going to be a lot of, a lot of text on the screen tonight. I'm just warning you. Um, just, just roll with it. Uh, no, you don't have to, you know, I don't know, memorize everything or, um, but, uh, I, I want to give you a sense of the breadth of the biblical witness about this. It's not just like a few cherry picked texts. This is very central. So this is the, uh, a passage out of the first chapter of Acts, and I'll just read it. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So this is after Jesus' resurrection. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's a, another account uh, in the end of the Gospel of Luke. Um, but this is the fullest account of the event. And as you can see, it's packed with things to talk about. We're not going to talk about all those things. Um, but some of them. The ascension, and we'll return to this passage later. Uh, the ascension is also referred to by Jesus himself in numerous places before his death. Particularly in John chapters 14 through 16. This... Um, Largely a sort of a monologue, Jesus speaking to his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And then after his resurrection, even, um, he says things about his, about his, uh, approaching ascension. And then as you, as you proceed further in the New Testament, the New Testament letters are full of, of discussions about the theological significance of the ascension. Um, book of Hebrews and book of Ephesians are the ones I'll be looking at tonight mostly. Um, sometimes in the places where it's not explicitly mentioned, it's there by implication. In a sense, you could say the entire New Testament is written in response to the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. It all is written after the ascension uh, and written in faith that the Lord has, has risen into heaven and will return from heaven. And so that's it's sort of the context of the whole, the whole New Testament. <clears throat> so... Uh, What's happening? (laughs) Firstly, the ascension um, and the kingship of Christ. The ascension is, in essence, Jesus coming into his full authority and power. Which is to say, taking his rightful place as king over all things, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Which is a, a biblical vocabulary for saying everything. And whenever you, whenever you, you see in the Bible, uh, heaven and earth, that's just a way of saying there's nothing that he's not king of. Uh, it's, it's a way of saying all things. Uh, he does not just ascend, but he ascends to the throne of the universe. We've already heard in the Apostles' Creed where it says he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Uh, this phrase, to be seated at the right hand of God, connotes absolute authority and equality with God. So whatever rights and prerogatives belong to God, rightfully belong to Christ. Theologians call this Jesus' session, which means his seatedness, his sitting downness uh, at the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus' ascent and his session belong together. They're two parts of the same act of receiving all authority as Lord. Uh, it's not that he ascended, looked around, and then decided to sit down. No, he, 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 the ascent and the seatedness are, are part of the same uh, motion, if you, if you will. I don't like the word session um, because to my ear it sounds like Jesus ascends into heaven to attend a Presbytery meeting, <laughs> which no offense to Presbyterians here, but I just, uh, uh, I, I prefer the non-word seatedness. <laughs> it's Jesus' seatedness. <clears throat> His earthly work was done, 
So he ascended, took his seat, and began to rule. N.T. Wright writes that when, uh, when we say Jesus is in heaven, what we mean is that he's in the control room of the universe. Uh, there's a church right here in Boston, a Presbyterian church actually, uh, called Christ the King. And I love, I love that as a, as a, a name for a church, because Christ really is King, but only because of the ascension and the seatedness that accompanies it. That's what it means that He's King. He's seated in heaven. Numerous biblical texts allude to the ascent and the kingly authority that comes with it. Uh, notably in the Old Testament, Psalm 2. <clears throat> Oh yeah, I actually do have this. Uh, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, this is a psalm that has been, uh, throughout the history of the church, attributed to, well, well, interpreted as referring to Christ's ascent to the throne. Christ's authority as king. Psalm 110, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is a fascinating psalm. This is just the beginning of, the, of Psalm 110. This is the psalm that Jesus himself uses to refer to himself and confounds the, the teachers of the law. Uh, how can... Uh, how can David has writ- have, have written this? Who is the Lord that the Lord is talking to? <laughs> um, and Peter points to the same text, Psalm 110, in Acts chapter 2 during his sermon on Pentecost. When he stands up at Pentecost, he's making the point that Jesus, who was crucified, was raised and ascended, is exalted right now, and he's the one that's poured out his spirit today. So there's a, a very, very early history of... of interpreting Psalm 110, even with Jesus himself interpreting it uh, as referring to his own kingship. Jesus himself tells his disciples the end of of Matthew uh, 28, what's known as the Great Commission. Just leading up to that, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And even, interestingly, the temptation narratives, which are are, take place in the beginning of, of Matthew and Luke, chapter 4, of Matthew and chapter 4 of Luke. Those, these passages where, where he's baptized and then he goes into the desert and is tempted for 40 days by the devil. Um, fascinating, rich passages that have references to to almost all of Scripture just in those few verses. Um, but even here, the seatedness and future authority of Jesus is alluded to, but in a negative sense. It's really interesting. Uh, Satan offers Jesus the allegiance of all the nations of the world if he would only bow down and worship Satan. And uh, there's many layers of irony and uh, meaning here. But one ironic thing uh, about the story is that Satan is offering something that's not truly his to offer. He doesn't have the authority to give all the nations to Jesus second ironic thing is that he's offering something that will one day rightfully belong to Jesus anyway uh, but only by enduring the cross and rising from the grave and ascending to his throne that's the only way the nations belong to Jesus is, is that path so Satan is appealing in a sense to Jesus good desire for his ascension authority 
but trying to offer him a pain-free shortcut to that ascension authority. Avoid the cross and be the founder of a worldwide religion. You can be the front man, but you'll be serving me behind the scenes, and all people will be lost. No one will be saved. That's Satan's offer. And Jesus rebukes Satan because he knows that the nations are his inheritance, but only on the other side of the cross, uh, which will also bring about the downfall of Satan, who is a liar offering false promises. So Jesus just sees through it and just cuts it, cuts it off, because he knows why he came. So let's let's stop for a minute and reflect on this claim about Jesus' seatedness. Because it's really worth stopping and reflect, allow our minds to dwell here. Um, what we're saying is that at the helm of the entire created order, there is a human being. This is a very strange thing to believe. Um, of course, it's not just a human being. Jesus is God, the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. But he's no less a human person right now than when he ate fish with his friends on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, The ascension does not undo or reverse the incarnation. Uh, That Jesus somehow puts off flesh as he ascends. The Bible doesn't say that. There's nothing that implies that that, you know, the image I have in my head is like as he goes up, he's sort of evaporating and thinning out so that as he, as he reaches heaven, he's invisible again or something. And, and that's, um, it's not what the Bible says. Um, Jesus ascends to the throne as a human in his glorified resurrected body. Uh, Dane Ortland, who's the author of this very well known Bestseller book, Gentle and Lowly. I'm not sure when it came out, a number of years ago, but has uh, been very helpful to many people, including myself. Um, surprisingly, deals deals a lot sort of indirectly with the Ascension. I, I didn't realize this when I started reading this book, and then I was getting excited reading it. <clears throat> Dane Ortland says this. The Son of God clothed himself with humanity and will never unclothe himself. He became a man and always will be. This is the significance of the doctrine of Christ's ascension. He went into heaven with the very body, reflecting his full humanity that was raised out of the tomb. He is and always will be divine as well, of course. But his humanity, once taken on, will never end. In Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism says, we have our own flesh in heaven. So during uh, the events described in the Gospels, God came to earth as a human. But we live in an age in which a human has gone to heaven as God. King of the universe. Lord of everything that exists. So God wasn't, the takeaway here is God wasn't messing around when, when he decided to become incarnate. This was, he really meant it. It's not like this revocable thing. Like, okay, well, that's over now. It, it's, it's an eternal thing that God has done. And I acknowledge uh, that this raises all kinds of questions that are are perhaps impossible to answer, at least now, uh, about the nature of heaven, if Jesus is still in the body, 
but is in heaven, where might that be? Uh, and one day in the new heaven and the new earth, how will Jesus be equally available in the flesh to all of his people? I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, those are good questions to ask, and maybe there's other ways of interpreting things to, to answer those questions, but um, I think we can say that heaven is not so much a locatable place in the universe as another dimension of reality in which God resides while still being present everywhere in the universe. And Christ, by virtue of being in heaven with the Father, uh, takes on as a human person that omnipresence of God. Uh, How this works, we'll talk more about this in terms of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, How this works is beyond uh, certainly my ability to understand um, Schreiner writes when Christ ascended he sat at the right hand of God but that place is also everywhere for God is everywhere the reality of the ascension goes beyond our human comprehension I was glad for that sentence like, Okay, uh, thanks for that <laughs> um, this brings us to another aspect of Jesus unique kingship we're still talking about his kingship um, that's accomplished by the ascension and that's that's the the transcendent nature of his kingship. The ascension puts into effect what Jesus had said to his disciples again and again, that the kingdom of God was not synonymous with the Jewish nation, but would transcend all national boundaries. Uh, That salvation is for all people who worship God in spirit and in truth, no matter where they happen to be. Uh, If you look back at the account of the ascension in Acts that we started with, in Acts 1... I've highlighted some things now. Um, You see, the disciples were still thinking locally, so to speak, not globally. (laughs) Um, They are still expecting a political redemption in which Jesus' chief goal is to restore Israel to independence, which would obviously involve ousting the Romans by some means, some military victory or whatever. Um, they ask, now are you going to do it? Like, we've waited long enough. We're like, let's get to the real point here. Like, are you going to restore Na- uh, Israel now? Um, amazing. <laughs> Jesus' patience. Is, uh, Jesus answers that it's not for them to know. And immediately before he ascends into heaven, he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit, who will send them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. You can imagine them nodding and smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Judea, okay, yeah, yeah. Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, They needed the Holy Spirit to come and convince them that that was their mission. Because it was not part of their agenda. Even then. So uh, he's turning his followers' attention outward from the concerns of the Jewish nation to the concerns of the whole known world. The local concerns of the Jewish people in Jerusalem are real. But they're relativized when Jesus uh, ascends to his transcendent throne. God's mission is wider, meaning to all people, and deeper, meaning it deals with sin and death. Much more fundamental human problem than political occupation, right? Sin and death, the the age-old dilemma of being a person. That's the depth of what God has come to deal with here. By departing from Jerusalem and ascending to the throne over all things, Jesus is not establishing his lordship just over Israel, but his universal lordship. 
So Christ's concern and his authority extends to the whole world. Uh, and you think of um, John 3.16, which the Greek word that's translated usually world is cosmos. For, for God so loved the cosmos that he sent his only son. Uh, there is a very, very broad, holistic picture of what Jesus has come to redeem. <clears throat> it's not local concern. It's concerned with all localities, but with the whole. Uh, you think also of the woman at the well in John 4. <clears throat> uh, yeah, and this is in the middle of a, of a very complex conversation in which she's dodging him and he's pursuing her in this conversation. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He's sort of talking about this relativizing of, of you know, where the okay place to worship God is. The time is here, because I'm here, he's saying, when uh, you can worship God anywhere, because <laughs> he's everywhere. And, and um, the, these distinctions will become relative distinctions, not absolute distinctions. <clears throat> so, we've been talking about Jesus kingship here um, we're moving into another one of Jesus offices here as we were sort of gradually we were already sort of there uh, that of, of Jesus as prophet <clears throat> and uh, and now we have to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit the sending of the Holy Spirit in John 14 all the way through on and off all the way through John 16. Jesus tells his disciples in a variety of ways that he will leave them and that the Holy Spirit will come to them. And I'm going to read uh, at some length these passages from John. I'm not going to read them all, but I'm, I'm reading large chunks of it. Just just sit back and, and, and let it um, let it come to you. We're not at all. This is not a. We're not going to, you know, do a deep dive here and exegete any any one thing very deeply. But I'm just. I want to give you the sense of the context of where these things are mentioned and how Jesus refers to them. Um. So, starting in John 14. <clears throat> let your hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. A number of verses later. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. 
this is incredibly dense and profound. Um, so I feel bad reading reading <laughs> reading past these things. But these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Still going. This is this is now a little bit further in John 15. He's still talking to his disciples. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I think this is the last chunk here. This is in chapter 16. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Anyway, that's just a whole bunch of the Gospel of John. Uh, but you see his theme. He's coming back again and again to the coming of the Holy Spirit, and his departure is connected with it, and that actually, despite their their sadness and confusion about this, it's to their it's it's to their advantage. Right? <clears throat> So in these passages, this again, this is this is speaking from ten thousand feet looking down. Um, we see that Jesus, um, in his mind, the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the witnessing of his disciples to the world are all of a piece. They're they're all connected. Uh, they're steps in the same plan, bound together. The disciples are disturbed because Jesus has told them that he'll be leaving them. But Jesus uh, sees the whole story. And he sees the connections that they do not yet see between his death and his resurrection, his ascension, Pentecost, and the future of the church. He sees these connections and they do not yet. So Jesus comforts them by saying that it will be better for them if he goes than if he stays. Because if he leaves, he will send the Spirit, the Helper. His disciples do not seem to understand, but Jesus is very gentle with them. I love this line. Uh, 
He doesn't demand that they understand everything in the moment. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It's okay. Think of all the things that Jesus want them to, want, might want them to get straight before I leave. You're like, oh my gosh, you guys. There's not much time left. Like, get it, get it into your heads. He's not, he doesn't treat them like that. Uh, I think Jesus has an amazing um, trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to make clear everything that is unclear uh, in the minds of his disciples. He says it. The, the Spirit will clarify. The Spirit will help you remember things that I've said to you that you have ignored <laughs> and forgotten. <clears throat> Even so, I can imagine being skeptical at Jesus' reassurances. I'm just putting myself in the, in the shoes of, of his disciples. I can imagine um, kind of wondering, what, what do you mean we're better off if you leave? And then you add to this apparent sort of contradictions in Jesus' words in, in, the, in the chapter 14, verse 18. I'm not going to go back to it, but um, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But he's ta- it's, he's ta- it's in the context of him telling them he's going to leave them. Uh, and in verse 28 of, of chapter 14, he repeats, I am going away and I will come to you. And... Presumably, shortly before he ascends, in, in the end of Matthew, he says to them, "I will be with you to the end of the age." I mean, this is one of his, his last words in the book of Matthew. Uh, how can he say these things? Which is it? <laughs> is he coming or going? Is he staying or going? Um, is he uh, doing something that we've probably done or heard people do, offering the kind of shallow comfort that we give each other in the face of death? Like, don't be sad that your mother died. You'll, she'll always be with you. Um, you will carry her in your heart. She lives on in our memories. Um, is that the kind of comfort Jesus is offering? <clears throat> no. Uh, Jesus is not just trying to soften the blow of his departure with platitudes. He's actually offering something concrete. Jesus is saying, you will actually have more of me when I send my spirit. <laughs> I will be more available to all of you by the Spirit, because it is my Spirit. I will be bodily absent from the earth, but everywhere accessible by my Spirit. Bodily absent, but everywhere accessible. Uh, Jesus can only encourage his followers because he and the coming Holy Spirit are one. That's the only reason why anything he says makes sense. Uh, It'll be the Holy Spirit, but it will be me with you. So the unity within the Trinity is crucial to Jesus' words of hope. Otherwise, it it is platitudes. (laughs) It really will be Him, by His Spirit, that fills them, encourages them, emboldens them, gives them the words to say. It really will, He really will be with them to the end of the age, by His Spirit. In addition, uh, Jesus will be with all of them in every corner of the world in which they will carry the gospel in a way that he could never have been had he remained in the body. <laughs> um, think of his words in the, uh, in the Acts passage. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. I'll be with you. Not just to the end of the age, but to the ends of the earth. Everywhere you could possibly go, I'm available and accessible to you. Awesome. <laughs> Patrick Schreiner makes the point that Jesus' ascent is therefore not the end of his ministry as a prophet, 
but it's the beginning of his prof- uh, prophetic role in the fullest sense. Uh, prophecy through the witnessing of the church, through the people of God, who are indwelt and empowered by the Spirit. So far from being Jesus stepping back from his role as, as prophet, it's Jesus stepping into his role as, as transcendent prophet. Um, and actually the history of the church bears this out. Uh, the spread of the speed with which Christianity spread to every corner of the known world, mostly by people who formerly only cared about Israel, uh, is shocking. It's a shocking historical fact. Like, how is it that uh, Christianity became that widespread and that established in that short a time? Um, there's lots of historical things to poke at and, and study, uh, but I think we can safely say it's the activity of Jesus' spirit that has come on his followers. Um, I want to transition now to the second major section of the lecture, which is what, what does Jesus' ascension continue to accomplish and the, the question here is, is really, uh, it's an awkward sounding question, but what did Jesus ascend to do? <laughs> uh, Jesus ascended to do what? Um, what is that ascension accomplishing in that ongoing way? The uh, present continuous, whatever the grammatical term is that I said earlier. Um, Interesting. Last week, I highly recommend that when it's uploaded on our podcast, you go and listen to Joshua's lecture of last week. Uh, it was on prayer and, and this idea of praying without ceasing through through the through the spiritual life of John Cassian. Um, awesome, awesome lecture. One of the things that came up in, in that lecture and in the discussion was that for many Protestants, the driving motivation for the spiritual life tends to be from the past. Uh, it's connected to gratitude for what has, what Jesus has accomplished for me on the cross already. And that's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. Uh, in contrast, for many Catholics, the spiritual life is oriented towards the future with a longing to see God, to gaze on the beauty of God. And we talked a bit about how both are important. Why, why do we have to choose? Um, <clears throat> they're in no way mutually exclusive. Uh, but what about the present, this, this moment of time that we're actually in? <laughs> uh, is there a theology of the present moment that can inform and motivate and encourage us? What's, what's our theology of the present moment? The answer is yes, and that is, there is a theology of the present moment that can inform us, and that is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for his people at all times. That, that's, what, that's the theology of the present moment that can encourage us. Um, in his book Gentle and Lowly Dane Ortland, uh, with the help of several Puritan writers he's kind of a lot of his reflections are are uh, kind of riffing off of Puritans who are interpreting biblical texts and he's engaging with the biblical text but also the Puritan um, perspective on them and it's it's uh, again highly recommend the book but he's contemplating the loving heart of Christ towards sinful people in his reflection on Hebrews 7, uh, Ortland writes, let me see, do I actually have, sorry, this text right here. <clears throat> <clears throat> he, 
he writes, When we talk about Christ's intercession, we are talking about what Jesus is doing right now. It's a very simple sentence, but I like, I like that. <laughs> when we talk about intercession, it's what Jesus is doing right now. We're approaching another aspect of the question, what did Jesus ascend to do? Uh, he ascended to take on the priestly role of intercession and to be our advocate with the Father. That's, that's uh, his role as priest, that office of priest. And these two words, intercession and advocate, they come from two different passages. One, the Hebrews 7 one, and then 1 John is where, is where that, that word perikletos, or, um, which is translated advocate. Um, <clears throat> so it's dealing with these two different passages here. I'll read the Hebrews 7 one first. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's a whole chapter just on that, on verse 25, in, in Gentle and Lowly. It's, what, what does it mean by the uttermost? And, and uh, anyway... So Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and from there becomes an intercessor on our behalf. What does intercession do? What does it mean? Intercession literally means to come between two parties or two people, to step in between. Um, It's a mediating role. The priests of Israel performed this function of mediating in the temple by making sacrifices for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. Uh, before the Lord, they sort of stood in as the representative of the people before the Lord. They made a sacrifice for their own sins and sacrifice for the sins of the people. Uh, and that is a, that is a role of intercession, uh, and mediation that the priests played within the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But, uh, anyone, any one of us can be an intercessor in prayer by lifting up the needs of another person, uh, before God. When we offer intercessory prayers, we're in a sense stepping between God and our suffering brother or sister and asking God to act for them. That's what interceding in prayer means. Lord God, please help my brother in this situation he's in. I'm stepping in between God and and my brother. So Hebrews uh, 7, 23 through 25, this passage on the top here is saying that within the sacrificial system, there were many, many priests because they would die and have to be replaced. It's a simple, it's nothing fancy about that. Um, But Jesus, because he conquered death in the resurrection, is never going to die. He's alive forever. And is therefore, doesn't have to be replaced as the priest. (laughs) He is the priest forever and ever, uh, alive with the Father. And he's stepped into that role forever uh, as priest. He stands between the Father and the people of God forever, representing them to God in his perfection. Uh, why is this necessary? Uh, wasn't this already taken care of on the cross? We often talk about the finished work of the cross, the finished work of Christ, usually referring to the cross. Um, Dane Ortland anticipates this question in a really helpful way, I think. <clears throat> He says, if we speak of the finished work of Christ on the cross, does the doctrine of intercession suggest that the cross was actually left unfinished? In other words, why do we need Christ 
in this position anymore? Wasn't it done? Isn't it taken care of? The answer is that intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work. Not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work. The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. That's really helpful. The the atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. In the past, Jesus did what he now talks about. In the present, Jesus talks about what he then did. (laughs) Intercession is the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven. I think this is a really helpful paragraph. (laughs) It clarified a lot of things for me. Um, Jesus intercedes as a way of activating or making available to us the benefits of what he's already done, right? In his death and resurrection. This is what Jesus is doing in heaven all the time as the heavenly priest. Because every Christian is in a state of sin and continually needs the blood of Christ applied to them. The blood is already shed and it's being applied to us. And first John, this other, nope. There it is. Um, the Apostle John uses an even more powerful image, I think, to describe what the ascended Jesus does in heaven on our behalf as priest. <clears throat> Actually, did I? Yeah. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. An advocate uh, is someone who pleads the case of a particular person before a judge, uh, taking up their cause. Basically, it's what today we would we would call a criminal defense attorney. <laughs> that makes it sound really uh, nasty. <laughs> but that's basically the, the, the image that John is uh, painting for us here. Christ is our criminal defense attorney. The courtroom metaphor of the judge, the accused... And the advocate is a very pointed way of basically describing intercession. Uh, it's the same basic idea. It's just a different metaphor. Um, and I think a more um, sort of in-your-face metaphor. Disturbing metaphor, I think, about in terms of our own place in the story. Uh, we're, we're someone who needs a criminal defense attorney. <laughs> in other words, it's not flattering to us. Um, Uh, Jesus is our advocate. John says that this is possible because uh, he is not some disinterested hired lawyer. John doesn't say that, but um, he's not not there because you're paying him. Uh, But rather, it's possible because he himself is the propitiation. Uh, He is an effective priest because he was the sacrifice. That's what that's what this this text is implying. It's loaded 
He's, he's our advocate, which is the priestly role, but he's also the propitiation. He was the one who died. He is the sacrifice as well as the one that offers the sacrifice. You can see this way in which Jesus does everything necessary. There's nothing left for us to do. I'm the priest. I'm also the one who's, who is given as a sacrifice. <clears throat> He himself made the offering, which was himself, which satisfied the demands of God's holiness. Removing the judgment from us that we actually deserve because of our sin. So Jesus is like a lawyer in a courtroom arguing our case before a judge. And when the judge asks, why uh, should this person be acquitted? Why should I let them go? Uh, Jesus responds, because I've already served their sentence. That's why. Um, and this is this is what the hymn writer is getting at. I think I think it's Cumby Sinners that says he pleads the merit of his blood. <laughs> He's, it's pleads the merit of his blood. It's very antiquated language, but I love it. If we think about what that means, it's Jesus saying, "My blood was good enough for this person." <laughs> uh, <clears throat> So when we med- uh, what, nope. <laughs> when we meditate on what Jesus ascended to do uh, to make intercession and be our advocate, we're beginning to see, I think, that our salvation is intensely personal and not abstract. And it is a moment-by-moment reality, not just an event in the past. That's what a, a good theology of... of um, uh, intercession and, and Jesus' advocacy means. Uh, our salvation, the fact that we belong in the family of God forever, is not just based on some legal status that was established for us 2,000 years ago. Uh, is your name on the list? Yes, check, next, kind of. Uh, it is founded on a decisive event of the past, but it is being constantly affirmed and renewed and ratified and protected in real time. Uh, your salvation is now because of because Jesus is, is uh, interceding for you. Your salvation is now. Uh, neither is our salvation a mechanical, impersonal sort of thing. Uh, Jesus sort of puts flesh on our salvation in every moment uh, by saying, this one is mine to the Father. Uh, my blood covers this one. Ben gets credit for my righteousness in his moment of failure. Uh, Joshua gets credit for my moment, for, for my righteousness in his moment of failure. Uh, Esther gets credit for my righteousness in her moment of failure. Um, this is a moment-by-moment reality for each of us. Uh, it's, and for so many people, myself included at times, grace, it, we know it's really important, we know it's the foundation of our hope as Christians, but it's kind of abstract, not really sure... We may be able to define it in ways that we learned it uh, or heard it preached about, grace, 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 uh, but we're not actually, we have no like experiential grasp of it. We don't feel <laughs> that we've been forgiven. We don't feel that God actually smiles on us. We, uh, it hasn't made contact, right, for so many of us. Grace is like this simple concept that's somehow inaccessible. Um, and this is so helpful to me, this idea of, the, of, of Christ interceding in each moment, particularly for you, uh, your advocate in your particular moment of failure before the Lord, uh, in every moment. It's, it's grace is happening right now. It's happening. It's, it's not an abstraction. It's not a feeling. 
It's what Jesus is doing right now for you. Um, Francis Schaeffer talked about moment-to-moment awareness of the forgiveness of God as really the foundation of Christian spirituality. If we're going to define what, what, what is Christian spirituality about, in a sense you could say, what, what is the sign of, of a Christian who's growing in maturity? It's, it's somebody who's growing in their moment-to-moment awareness of the forgiveness of Christ. Someone for whom, like a mature Christian is someone for whom that is so real and intuitive that, it, that it, they don't have to remind themselves in words of it anymore. It's like, yes, they live in a state of, of grace, right? But a moment-to-moment awareness is really, is really foundational to what it is to be, to, to live the Christian life. Um, and the way I often try to internalize this uh, is to pray, you know, when, I, when, I'm, when I've messed up or when I've done something that I regret or, or I'm struggling with really destructive thinking or whatever, uh, I say, Jesus, it's for this, fill in the blank, that you came. Uh, it's for this. Uh, it's for this again, um, that you died and rose again, over and over and over again. It's a way of just trying to, trying to internalize this moment-by-moment awareness of God's forgiveness. Um, you didn't come for no reason. You came for this, this moment. And this has been helpful, but uh, it isn't, what struck me preparing for this lecture, it isn't just a mental exercise to remind me of the relevance of an event that happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, it's actually a source of hope because Jesus himself is saying the same thing in heaven. Father, it is for this <laughs> that I died, right? Uh, it's for this and this and this, ongoing. So our moment-to-moment awareness of forgiveness truly corresponds to Jesus' own moment-to-moment intercession and advocacy for us. Uh, it's not just a, uh, a mental exercise to help us remember the cross. It's founded on the cross, but it's a way of connecting with what Jesus is doing now. And it's the hope that undergirds all Christian spirituality. That Christ, who is our Savior, by his blood, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and in each moment associates himself with us <laughs> every day. Um, it's a reality that's, that's invisible to us, but it's essential to the Christian life. So, to be very clear, I just wanna, I wanna hedge off misunderstandings as much as I can. When Jesus intercedes and advocates for us, he wins the case every time. Um, it's not the tenuous sort of courtroom scene that we that we love to watch on TV. <clears throat> you know, is the lawyer going to convince the jury or the judge or whatever? Uh, it's not like that. It's a helpful metaphor to a point, but nothing is per- no metaphor is perfect. But he wins the case every time. This is because God the Father always listens to God the Son and delights in giving him what he asks. This is something of the inner working, the love and the mutual glorification of the Trinity. God is giving glory to Christ. Christ is giving glory, glory to God the Father. Um, when Jesus asks things of the Father, the answer is always a resounding yes. Except Gethsemane. <laughs> right. Maybe that's the only time. <clears throat> Significantly, the only time. And yet, but now, the ascended Christ, every, every answer to, to his request is a resounding yes. Um, it's a serious theological distortion to envision Jesus as our loving advocate pitted against God who desires to punish us. 
the Father who desires to punish us, as if God is a God of wrath. He just is longing to get out the paddle and smack us. But Jesus comes along. He's the nice one and tries to distract God so that so that um, he doesn't take out his anger on us. And that that frankly, that's the way a lot of people think about God. And uh, a lot of churches have done nothing to downplay that or, or correct that, which is a really false theology that does it, it makes a mess of, of the Trinity. Um, uh, it's not Jesus' job to placate the Father and cool him down so he doesn't hurt anybody. Um, the Father and the Son are not at odds with each other at all. <laughs> they're working; they're not working against each other at all. They are together in perfect cooperation of one mind, of one heart, maintaining the mercy and the holiness of the Trinity. This is what they're doing together. Uh, maintaining the, the holiness of the Trinity, but also maintaining the mercy of the Trinity. And they can only do that because Jesus himself has died for the sins of the world. So uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons, which means that they're continually in step with each other, giving and receiving glory. Uh, they are they are not in conflict about um, loving and accepting sinners who come and ask for forgiveness. So, it was the Father's plan before the creation of the world to save us through the work of His Son. So why would He accept Jesus' petitions on our behalf with reluctance? It's His plan. Uh, he accepts them with joy because this was the whole goal and the whole point from the beginning. It was his rescue plan. So Jesus' work is effective. He died to offer an acceptable sacrifice, which means it's accepted. <laughs> right? <clears throat> All this is to say that God forgives and accepts us with great joy as a result of Jesus' intercession. So, uh, the ascension, I think, is one more reason why we should not and cannot self-advocate before the Lord. We have a tremendous tendency, every human being has a tremendous desire to somehow save themselves, to be the one that offers um, the argument for their own innocence. Um, Self-salvation is, is what the whole Bible is warning us against. And, and to reflect on the on the fact that God, that Jesus himself is advocating for us in every moment is a reminder. You can't advocate for yourself, neither do you have to. Um, to actually advocate for yourself before the God is, is to say, uh, no thanks, I'll represent myself, Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, but we can have faith and we can trust him. We can believe him uh, and trust the merit of his blood. Uh, he will do what needs to be done. Um... I want to move to one more uh, main biblical passage here. Winding, we're winding down. You guys are doing great. Mostly alert faces. Um, it's been going on a while, I know. Um, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians, again, Ephesians is just just loaded and packed with theology and um, demands a lot of careful study which I'm not going to offer to you tonight. Um, this is all like a chance for you to go and study the Ascension in depth, you know, in your, on your own time. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul uh, reveals, I think, an even deeper significance of the Ascension in, in this book. 
I'll read this passage and then we'll reflect on it. Um, So this is Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. And he's just been talking about how we we are dead and we were dead in our sin. So the but is a transition, but God, uh, in contrast to to where, where we were before. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So like I said, the passage leading up to this, he's, he's, he's reflecting on all the ways in which we were dead in our transgressions, unresponsive to God. So the words, but God, mark a dramatic uh, and joyful turning point in his letter. And in verse 4 through 10, Paul speaks of three actions that God makes towards us because of his rich mercy and love. And these three actions are each possible because we are with Christ or bound to him in some way. The first one is in verse 5. God made us alive together with Christ. And this refers to Jesus' resurrection, making us alive. Jesus was dead and rose again. We were dead and uh, in our sin and were made alive with him through his resurrection, which is both initiating a new life in the spirit right now, but also guaranteeing our own bodily resurrection in the future. The resurrection does both of these things welcomes us into a new life now and guarantees uh, uh, an embodied, glorified life later. The second action is in verse, the first half of verse 6. God raised us up with him. And this seems at first to refer to the resurrection, but Paul has already mentioned the resurrection. Uh, John Stott has written this very helpful commentary on Ephesians. I was trying to get my head around what this passage was about and uh, John Stott just just says this is referring to Jesus' ascension um, <clears throat> it's not, it sounds like the resurrection but it's not it's, it's, um, Paul is referring to Jesus' ascension Paul is saying incredibly that we have ascended to heaven with him uh, and finally it gets, it gets weirder <laughs> and uh, more amazing the, the third action is God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is clearly referring to Jesus' session, his seatedness on the throne in heaven. We're to be, we uh, are seated there with Jesus, by God, with, with Jesus in the heavenly places. Um, 
So because we're together with Christ, because we join him in his resurrection, his ascension, and his session, his seatedness. Um, this is, this is, uh, it's very hard for me to understand. <laughs> um, but uh, in Ephesians and in many other letters, Paul is driving home his theology of being in Christ. So that his, this is way, and uh, there's, a, there's a, a number of lectures that Dick has done a number of years ago uh, that are very helpful in this regard. The, the nature of our connection to Christ, of the believer's connection to Christ. There's one called, is it vine, the vine and branches or something? Is that the name of the? Yeah. Um, that digs into this uh, much more deeply than I can tonight. But Paul loves this phrase, in Christ. And he says it over and over and over again in his different letters, many times just in the book of Ephesians. Um, but as you can see, as we saw earlier, Jesus himself uses similar language in the Gospel of John. We are in him, and he is in us, and we are in the Father, and he's, in, he's this interpenetration. Um, but this phrase of Paul's, in Christ, is, is one of his hallmarks, <laughs> one of the hallmarks of Paul's theology. And it means that we are so closely bound to him, so inseparable, that wherever he goes, we go. Uh, we're unified with Christ, uh, such that the bond is unbreakable. And I was thinking of uh, lame metaphors for this, and I'll tell you that it's lame ahead of time. But you know, if you if you if you want two pieces of wood to stick together, you can glue them, you can screw them together. Um, that's one kind of bond. You have wood, you have some glue that's touching the wood, and you have glue that's touching the other piece of wood, and it holds it together. Uh, but then there's another kind of bond which is much, much stronger, and that's the bond of two things that are unified, which is what you do when you weld two pieces of metal together. Essentially, what welding is, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody that knows, but you're basically getting it so hot that you're melting the edge of one piece of metal, melting the edge of another piece of metal, and mingling the two together so that when they cool, it's one piece of metal. <laughs> right? You can take something you've welded together, you can throw it on the ground as hard as you can, and it's not going to break because it's it's become the same piece. Right? Uh, it's not two pieces of wood glued together. It's a different thing. Um, and that's something like the connection that we have with Christ. It's not the connection of very strong glue. It's the connection of being unified. Um <clears throat> Never in a sense that, that blurs the distinction between creature and creator, but unified nonetheless. Uh, because we are in Christ, Paul's, Paul's phrase, because we're in Christ, we have died with Christ, we have risen with Christ, we've ascended with Christ, and we're seated with Christ. Uh, we follow him in that entire trajectory. Yeah. And Paul says uh, in the very beginning of Ephesians, we are currently with Christ in the heavenly places, enjoying every spiritual blessing right now. So in some deeply mysterious way, um, Jesus took us with him when he ascended. Um, Maybe in the same sort of mysterious way that we can say, living 2,000 years later, I was there when he was crucified. Right? I wasn't, but I was. <laughs> uh-uh. 
So this to me is totally astonishing and honestly a, a huge stretch to know what it means. Uh, it's clearly a theological reality that requires faith from us right now. Uh, and yet I think can be tremendously encouraging to us as we live life in the, in the places that are less than heavenly, right? As we live uh, life in the day to day. We are already with him in glory and our future glory is that secure. I think this is one of the things we can take away. That's how confident we can be in our future glory. We're already there, right? Um, so I want to start to wind up slowly. I have a meandering conclusion. Um, to sum up some of the things that we've covered here, just to, just to um, help solidify them. I've attempted to show that in the ascension we see a fulfillment and culmination of Jesus' ministry on earth. And this is using sort of the categories that Patrick Schreiner talked about in his book on the ascension. Um, We see Jesus stepping into his ultimate roles of king and prophet and priest. And given this, it's a real mistake to view the ascension as simply a departure or as God sort of pulling away as if only his disciples really got the benefit of his presence uh, and the rest of us have to make do with living in the world without him, that is not... If you come away with that, then, then I've failed. <laughs> my lecture. Um, the ascension is rather the way in which God's plans for us are actually realized. Uh, it's the way his plans for the world are advanced. Um, many of us have probably heard or used the phrase... Um, the already and the not yet. And this is a way of describing the, the tension that Christian people live in now. We live in light of what's already been done uh, and anticipating all the things that have not yet been fulfilled. And, and that's just where, where every human life is, in something of that tension. So much of what we've been reflecting on tonight about the ascension of Jesus is the already part of that phrase. You think the already and the not yet. The ascension is dealing largely with the already part of the phrase already and not yet. It encapsulates so much of Christian truths that are established but invisible to us in our present state. Um, It's like the assurance of victory that we have in the middle of a war. The war is still going, but victory is certain. Um, we have yet to see God face to face. We have yet to have pure hearts. We have yet to see his kingdom come and his will be done as it is in heaven. We have yet to see Christ's lordship established and recognized here on earth. We have yet to stand with him in glory. Uh, and yet there's a sense in which these things are already the case. <laughs> um, or at least guaranteed to be the case. Because Jesus has ascended to the throne in heaven. So I'd like to end uh, with one last answer to this original question. When I said, what did Jesus ascend to do? Remember that question? What did he, what's he doing up there? <laughs> um, we've already offered many answers to that question. Uh, to do with these different offices that he holds Uh, but there's at least one more and that is Jesus ascended to receive worship and we're going to end with one of my favorite passages in all of scripture from Philippians 2 Paul quotes what 
what many people think is a is a hymn, though it's hard to prove that, but it seems to be um, he's in the midst of an argument or an exhortation, and then he seems to break into song, one can imagine, or at least into poetry. Um, and it's a hymn of praise to Christ, and it traces the downward movement of Jesus in the Incarnation and the Crucifixion, and then it continues tracing his movement all the way to his ascension and his exaltation. And so it's an incredibly dramatic few verses. Um, if you want to get on the roller coaster with, with Jesus, it's, it's, um, so it's not in this text in Philippians 2, it's not just Jesus' kingship or his prophetic role or his priestly role that's being highlighted. Rather, it's his worthiness to receive worship. Like the highest praise and worship you could give to anyone, it's do him. It's appropriate. So I'll read this uh, this text and then I'll end. And we can then have a time of uh, discussion. So this is Philippians 2, starting in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So this, for those of you who are new to Labrie and how we do things here, we open it up for a conversation if anyone has questions they want to raise, uh, or observations, or objections, or whatever, uh, feel free to do that now. You're free to go now. If you need to go, that's fine. Uh, my feelings won't be hurt. But you're also free to stay and have a conversation. He was a woodworker. I'm surprised he stayed with welding <laughs> and didn't go to the image of grafting. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you know, that, that is a way making two one. True, um, yep. And, and that's a very biblical image. There's the, the Welding is not a biblical image, <laughs> but grafting is. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But the other thing I was, I was thinking of in all this is that uh, in terms of time, mm-hmm. God is eternal in which there are no moments. You know, time cannot be pixelated. There's no cause and effect. Mm. And the idea of... I, I think it's important to realize that the ascension is not from that time forward because that just kind of traps us in this image of time meaning unidirectional, mm-hmm. where time... 
the redemptive uh, reach of, let's say, uh, the ascension and all this, mm-hmm. the uttermost goes everywhere mm-hmm. immediately for eternity. Mm-hmm. And and I think we need to sort of uh, ch- try to try to keep keep that in mind too. That this is not. Sort of, I mean, it is historical, but it's also ahistorical mm. in certain respects, and, and I, because that I think uh, is just an important component mm-hmm. of, of this. I was thinking of the uh, in Hebrews at the end of Hebrews 11, where uh, the writer says, "Of you know, after this, uh, if you will, hymn to the cloud of witnesses." Yeah. Uh, the that apart from us, they they would not be made perfect, or, mm. or apart from us, you know, that, uh, they're not perfected apart from us, or something like that. So there is this kind of collapsing of, of time into something far more mysterious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I um I'll say one thing, and it, which I, it's not—it's not so much an answer to that. It's just um, something that complicates matters for me. <laughs> is that um, that it's a very—it's it's very true and right to, to to affirm that time is made by God. It's it's not something that God exists within in the same way that we do. He's eternal. He's, he exists out, outside of time. It's a creature. Um, and it's it's a creature that we live within, <laughs> uh, and yet there's the incarnation in which God, without ceasing to become eternal, enters into the grind of linear time <laughs> and experiences all of the frustrations and the pain and the. Um, and what, what what does that do though in terms of God's relationship to time now and for all eternity? You have to say on some level God still stands outside of time, but the second person of the Trinity is a human being, and I don't know um, how that can be easily reconciled and uh, in a way that would make sense to us in our in how we think in our limited limited minds, but. I do, I do think that in the book of Hebrews, it's, it's over and over again, is affirming that, that because Jesus, it, we have a priest who understands not just what it was like to be a person back then, but who understands what it's like to be a person, you know, he's uh, in this moment. Um, I, in, in other words, because, because God became a human being and inhabited time, and that human being ascended to the throne, I don't have any problem at all talking about his intercession in the context of time. Um, and that's not to negate that God stands apart from time and transcends time, but it's also to say, but yeah, but after the incarnation, we, we this may sound like heresy, but God has a different relationship to time. <laughs> um, something has changed. And uh, God, in His essence and His person and His character, hasn't changed. But something has changed. Like the incarnation is not a normal thing. Um, 
So yeah, anyway, those are just some thoughts. I don't know if anybody else has a... Marty, do you have something? Yeah, it's not as esoteric as, as that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more one of the really practical down-to-earth consequences of what, what you were saying, what Francis Schaefer talks about, of um, the core of true spirituality is growing in the ability to moment-by-moment moment apply the finished work of Christ. Mm-hmm. What was very helpful in your thing is saying it. I'm conscious of doing that, but Jesus is doing that too, for mm-hmm. me, which is really, really mm-hmm. helpful. But one of the wonderful, um, very dangerous applications of that is that, is that we, and Hebrews talks a lot about this, is that if we're doing that, we can live without guilt. Mm-hmm. We, we are Christians who are continually yeah. doing sort of what you said it's for this you died Jesus yeah. you died for this awful thing I just said to someone or an awful thing I just thought about someone yeah. or my, my inconsiderateness or whatever you died for this thank you and the guilt yeah. should be gone which which doesn't mean we may be convicted by the Holy Spirit but we need to apologize to someone yeah. we may need to you know we may be convicted by you know you really you really blew it you really blew that one and mm-hmm. you need to say you're sorry mm-hmm. not only to God but Whoever you've hurt. Yeah. But if you've done that, um, as Paul says, insofar as you've, you've done your part, whatever, whatever you can to make peace with all men, mm-hmm. again, because of the finished work of Christ, we can be free of guilt, even of things mm-hmm. we have done and said that, some, that a person will forgive us for. Mm-hmm. God has forgiven us. The, the appropriate result of God, of Jesus interceding for us is a clean conscience, a clean basically. Conscience, which is, in your life. Which is amazing, yeah. Incredible yeah. gift. Yeah. Um, you know, especially for those of us to go around feeling guilty after <laughs> talk. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's an amazing gift, and it's a, it's a good way to kind of test ourselves as to, am I getting this mm-hmm. thing of grace of what Jesus did for me? Because if I am, then I ought to be able to let go of guilt feelings and be, yeah. be able to live with a clean conscience. Um, as long as I've done what I what I need to do in the sense of apologizing, right. I need to apologize or write a letter to someone, whatever. Yeah. It's an amazing gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thanks. Eric. Yeah, um, just one compliment and then a follow-up question. I appreciated how you talked about the heart of the Father that's receiving the intercession mm-hmm. is not from being reluctant this is not being ripped from him you know, yeah, yeah. reluctant hands uh, and I think that's that was encouraging and mm-hmm. something I think we need to recall um, but I was thinking also so the son intercedes for us the spirit does as well mm-hmm. Paul says and mm-hmm. so I wondered if you looked at that at all in terms of is it a, a differentiated mm-hmm. kind of intercession Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from the spirit and the sun. Yeah, I suspect it might be, but I don't, I don't mm. know. If what is the that? What, what is the the passage that talks about the the spirit being our Jesus advocate with us? Mm-hmm. It's John either fourteen or sixteen. Okay, I can't quote it for you, but it's okay, yeah. sixteen. Yeah, yeah. So, so there is a sense in which this is this is something that we often talk about with people about the the Holy Spirit is this harder to define member of the Trinity. What is the Holy Spirit doing? <laughs> um, and really, really interesting to contrast the 
what John says in First John, the, the line about advocate, that Jesus is our advocate to the Father. So he's the one that's arguing our case to the Father. And then this other passage, which I forget where it is, it's uh, the Holy Spirit is Jesus' advocate with us, meaning he's arguing Jesus' case to us. Um, which is, it's going, it's, it's advocacy going in a different direction, mm-hmm. but what it is, is doing the work of turning people with hardened hearts to Christ. And, or people who need comfort, need to accept the comfort of what Jesus has done. The Holy Spirit is in the business of, of saying, Jesus is good, what he's done is good enough, it's sufficient. Yes, you can be, you can, you can rest in your forgiveness. Um, that's the Holy Spirit's advocacy for Jesus to us. and Or, someone desperately needs to be convicted of their sin because they really don't think they've done anything wrong at all. And the Holy Spirit works as a convictor. <laughs> but everything the Holy Spirit does is pointing us to Jesus. Whether it's pointing us to Jesus in comfort or pointing us to Jesus in conviction. Um, it's, it's The Holy Spirit is always pointing to, the, pointing to Christ. Right? Um, now that's, I don't know if that's the kind of advocacy you were talking about. Were you talking about the Holy Spirit advocating for us to the Father? I was thinking more of, uh, in, in Romans, the, you know, the word there is intercede. You know, intercede, yeah. We're familiar with, you know, intercede, so those are grown, so I can't understand. Right, 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 yeah. But, right, but, yeah. but it even follows it up again. Um, Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Mm. Um, and may, so maybe that's... I just, I guess when I'm thinking about it in sort of the courtroom of heaven, it seems like we have a legal team, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, I wonder how their advocacy and, and intercession is, is um, differentiated to the Father. But it's, right. that's right. encouraging to think too about yeah, this. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question, uh, and I haven't really looked into it closely at all, just that, you know, if the Spirit is advocating for us, and Jesus is advocating for us, is there a difference? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not I'm not really sure. So, mention the little book, um, Be Filled Now, I forget who wrote it. Yeah, it's, it's by a guy named Roy Hessian. It's it's yeah. out of print. It's like a very, very small book, but if you can find an uh, out-of-print copy of it, Roy, Roy Hessian, Be Filled Now. It's mm-hmm. a... Uh, it's the book on the Holy Spirit. It's really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not out of print. Oh, is it not? Oh, good. We printed, we basically photocopied a bunch of copies a number of years ago. <laughs> but that's not the same thing as being in print again. Same thing as breaking the law here. No, no, no. Hadley. <laughs> okay, this might be a very silly question because I think just hearing all these answers, I think, answers the question. Um, but I was just thinking about the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, in partic- uh, the Trinity in particular, um, and my confusion actually lies more in Jesus than the Holy Spirit and God. And I think about practically, I, I talk to my father, and I, I you know, just, that's who I talk to all day, and I have the Holy Spirit inside me. But what do I do with Jesus? Like, mm. like obviously, like we're talking about his concession, like his um, Guilt and the you know he's interceding for us and he is our advocate and that's mm-hmm. what he's doing and I 
Yeah, that's interesting. I, I um, very often people feel that way, not about Jesus, but about the Holy Spirit, <laughs> as, as the more sort of abstract, sort of not abstract, but seemingly abstract members of the Trinity. I mean, I, I think um, it's important to keep reflecting on that and, and, and asking that question: Why? Why does Jesus seem less relevant or more distant to me than than? God the Father and the Spirit, because um, Jesus is the one that shares your humanity. Uh-huh. <laughs> Jesus is the one that's walked uh, on the, the earth and has, 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 knows what it's like to be tempted, uh-huh. uh, knows what it's like to experience pain and rejection, knows what it's like. And so in terms of the, 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 the passages in Hebrews that are just emphasizing that because Jesus is a human being and God, God now identifies completely with what it's like to be a human being. That's very important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what makes the Christian faith utterly unique. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's nothing like it, you know. um, And and then that and that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what it. I don't know you well enough to know what it would take for. (laughs) But but uh, I would just say keep pushing into that and. and asking why and trying to seek out who this who this person is who is God and um, and you know the only reason you have the spirit is because Jesus came died rose again ascended sent the spirit <laughs> um, and that's and it's his spirit and it's him mm-hmm. it's his spirit yeah. Yeah. Sarah yeah, I was sort of following Kathleen's question, but I, I don't, I'm like really glad you pointed out that it's Jesus the human who's at the right hand of the Father, mm-hmm. and that he doesn't, he doesn't disincarnate himself in that ascension. Um, I mean, which is like, the resurrection account, like the the lengths that the gospel writers go to to be like this body, this perfected yeah. body, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. bodily, yeah, and there's no laying that aside, yeah. you know. And yet somehow in my mind, I think I've done that like you described, mm-hmm. sort of like, <laughs> like <laughs> evaporating something, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I do think that there's. And then, and then to point out the passage in Ephesians that we are seated with Christ, mm-hmm. um, and I think maybe part of the advocacy of the Holy Spirit pleading Jesus's case to us mm-hmm. is is the Holy Spirit pleading our humanity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. our perfected humanity, mm-hmm. to us, um, mm-hmm. like Jesus, the unfallen human. Like yeah. this is this is actually the vision of our restored humanity. Yeah. And yeah, which makes me think of um Rookmacher's comment about mm-hmm. Jesus didn't come to make you a Christian. He came mm-hmm. to make you human. Yeah. Um so maybe some sort of answer there mm-hmm. for you Hadley. Like maybe yeah, like there's a mm-hmm. I mean there's a movement for all of us yeah. into deepening humanity. Yeah. Um, 
that requires a profound, like, profound imagination. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's helpful, yeah. I think that's the, um, the fact that we believe in a, in a God who became a human being, died, and then rose again in with a body, mm-hmm. is just such a ridiculous affirmation of, of, of human physical existence. Mm-hmm. It's like, what more can God do mm-hmm. to show us that he approves of mm-hmm. the body? And being a, being a human, and it's this incredible chasm that's been that's been breached by or crossed by God becoming a human being, because God is transcendent, and humans are limited, and it's the deepest mystery and the biggest miracle that's mm-hmm. ever happened. But it's not as if being a human is gross to God, mm-hmm. right? It's, yeah. it's like he became a human being because it's a good thing to be a human being. He invented it. You know, he invented humanity. Um, still, still the most astounding miracle, but it's not as if like humanity... Sin is what's the problem. It's not being a person with a body. <laughs> um, and that is... Sometimes think about these big events in the biblical narrative, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension not just as what they accomplish, but what they teach, what they show about who God is. Because like, yeah. God is doing both all the time. It's like, this accomplishes something, and it also shows something about who I am and what I care about. And the resurrection is one of those things. It's like, the resurrection accomplishes the new life right now, it accomplishes our future resurrection, and it also shows that God loves the human body <laughs> and, and loves people. Yeah, yeah. yeah Marty. Well, and it, and it fits with what what you pointed out, which I really found helpful, when Jesus when Jesus said to the disciples in the John 14 through 16 thing, you know, there's so many more things I need to tell you, you need to know, but you can't bear it now. Mm. Is yeah. because he he knows what it, he knows what it is yeah. to to have a body. He knows what it he knows our limitations. He knows that we're dust, and to dust we shall return. Mm-hmm. He knows what we can handle, what we can't handle, and that idea that you, you can't bear it now. Mm-hmm. Is, um, yeah. He actually, as a, as a human, knows something what it is. You're just too tired. Yeah. You're, you're too yeah, yeah. Hungry. You're too hungry. You're too tired. I mean, the number of places. You're low in blood sugar. You'll never understand this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the number of places in the Bible where, um, where God feeds people, or yeah, the angel yeah. feeds a lighter, and it says, you know, before you can do this trip, come on, you gotta eat. And sleep. Eat this. Eat and sleep. Yeah. yeah. Eat and sleep. Jesus knows that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I don't, e- I don't even know that about my own kids. I'll be like, you need to understand this. I, I you know, what do you mean? You're like, I have something more to say to you. <laughs> it's like, well. You can't do it now. But this is, this is, uh, where, where is the, I forget where the passage is where, where it talks about Jesus. His, he knew his work was done. And, and, uh, and you just and you look at the state of the disciples at that point, and you're like, "His work was done." Like he sent a lot of stuff to them, and they still—they're not particularly close to getting it yet. And uh, seems like there's some more work that he should be doing here. But really, it's it's, it's because he knows the Father and the Spirit, and he knows that he, he he's he's ascending into heaven, but um, he's still teaching them, and he's with them, and he. Uh, so he has tremendous confidence 
then like, no, my work is done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, John 17, where he says, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Esther. The word session, how is that spelled? S-E-S-S-I-O-N. Okay. Yeah. I hope I didn't offend any Presbyterians tonight. I just, it's just an association of the word. I'm like, hmm. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. It brings up, like, government... Session of Congress or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not very. Just icky, icky connotations. <laughs> I guess what I wonder is because the word intercession yeah. has that sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You use yeah. the language of like standing between, and I was like, yeah. is it sitting between? Oh. Um, the etymology of intercession, uh, hmm. which I don't know, just took my imagination. Wonderful places. <laughs> like I have a homework assignment for you, right. Esther. You should find out whether, that, <laughs> whether there's any connection. I don't know. That's a really great point. I don't know. It is with an S, though. For whatever that's worth. Oh yeah. At the right hand I mean, it's it certainly, it's, yeah. It does yeah. seem to yeah. some emotion or, like, mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. energy. Actively involved mm-hmm. and actively, yeah, yeah. <coughs> and anyway, what that language means, really, who, what, it, what does it mean that Jesus is sitting all the time? <laughs> mm. It really does boggle. Mm-hmm. It's more than we can get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Let me go. Thank you.